Hey everybody, my name is Matt Pierce. I'm the learning and video ambassador for TechSmith Corporation. Let's, let's get into the, the real reason we're here today. Let's welcome Jay Bear, our guest. He's the president of Convince and Convert, a best-selling author, and I'm sure more than that, Jay. So uh, thank you for joining us, first of all. Matt, fantastic to be here. Always fun to work with my friends at TechSmith, one of the software packages uh, that I use every day. I was just logged into Camtasia and Snagit a moment ago before we turned it on. I am uh, is indispensable to me in my work, that's for sure. Yeah, well, we we really appreciate you being here, and uh, thank you for using the products. We hope it's making your life a little bit easier. Uh, Jay, so much. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, good. I'm guessing that uh, you've got a, a following people that will tune in who will know absolutely know who you are, but there's probably some people who maybe don't know who you are. Give us your little spiel of, like, why should we know you? Because I, I believe that everyone should know who you are, read your books, Thanks. learn your content, but give us, g tell us My what mom you... agrees. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I'm sure she agrees. does. <laughs> I have been in uh, digital marketing uh, since the beginning, since 1993. Uh, so long ago, Matt, that this is actually true. My um, partners and I and my very first internet company sold the domain name Budweiser.com to Anheuser-Busch Brewing uh, in 1993 for 50 cases of beer. <laughs> and we genuinely thought like we got a pretty good deal on that. That's that's how long I've been doing this. So uh, I have been involved in communicating via the web since you could do such a thing, uh, generally speaking. I've had a series of, of consulting firms convince and convert. My current uh, firm was founded in 2008. We work with many of the world's most iconic brands to help them communicate better with uh, video, with text, with audio all things online, social media, and beyond. We work with uh, Oracle, the United Nations, uh, Hilton, Chiquita Banana, Bentley, uh, a bunch of other great brands. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, as mentioned, I've written uh, six uh, best-selling business books about marketing, about content marketing, about customer service, customer experience, et cetera. And I spend a lot of my time, or used to spend a lot of my time, uh, traveling around giving presentations to audiences all around the world. Haven't done much of that lately, obviously, but doing a lot more virtual presentations here in the home studio, which has been a lot of fun. I also have uh, currently three podcasts that I produce on a weekly basis, uh, and a lot of others here. Uh, here or there. So uh, staying busy, having a, a lot of fun and having an incredible team. Uh, so it's nice to be with you as always. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, you know, Jay, you should probably take up some hobbies. You have, it sounds like you've got a lot of spare time. Oh, I do have hobbies. Do. <laughs> uh, I am a certified barbecue judge and I'm an avid tequila collector and I'm a, uh, a, a, a boatsman. I have a, a boat uh, in a lake near here. So I, I try to be on the water as much as I can. So th that'd be a three, the three hobbies, uh, probably shouldn't combine them too much. Boating, tequila, and barbecue. Pick, pick two out of three. That's right. You get the Venn diagram and you get the, the perfect combination. <laughs> the greatest Venn diagram ever. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Jay, you mentioned that uh, as a presenter, you know, you've, you've traveled all over the world giving presentations, but you're not yeah. doing that, obviously, with COVID-19 and restrictions yeah. and it makes it difficult. Um, and that's what we're really here to talk about, because you were so gracious to work with us and we did some research. We looked at some yes. data, talked to some people about how they were impacted. Now, uh, but I think it's really important to see like what's happening out there. Um, and I will note the, the research that we did was like back in March. So this is really yes. early on, right? Mm -hmm. How people perceive they were going to be impacted if they were speakers. So tell us a little bit my, about the group. Yeah, you spoke my, last, to. my last live date uh, was March 6th. 
Uh, I did an event at Caesar's Palace. It was also a client of ours, ironically. I uh, did an event at Caesar's Palace March 6th, and that was the it. That was it for me, uh, as it was around that time for a number of other professional speakers. Some folks had gigs kind of trickled out into mid-March, but that was kind of the end of the ru- run for, for most of us. Uh, and, and we worked together on a little survey that we extended to the professional speaking community in a couple of different places. Uh, we put it in the National Speakers Association Facebook group as well as a Facebook group, which is currently uh, dark, but uh, was called Speak and Spill, which had 500 or so professional speakers in it. And, and we just asked those speakers some questions about their attitudes about not doing live speaking and and their embrace of video and technology, et cetera. And the results were, were, were pretty interesting. And again, Matt, I'm glad you set this up that when we did this research, it was at the very, very beginning uh, of, of the pandemic, at least in the US and Canada. And so now if we were to redo this research today, we might have some differences of opinion in terms of people's comfort with non-live speaking, et cetera. But it's fascinating to see where everybody's head was at, you know, in the first week when you're saying, huh, I'm definitely not going to have any live speaking for the next three months. And as it turns out, I think we're going to see very little for the rest of this year. Um, it would be my prediction. Uh, and so if you've spent, like I have, 180 to 200 days a year giving live speeches for the last 11 years, and now you're doing none of that, it's a very interesting and different way to live your life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Like I can imagine time in the room. I got to tell you that it's uh... (laughs) gives you more time for the boats to tequila and the barbecue, I hope. (laughs) Indeed. Well, I tell you what, there's a lot of truth to that. We'll get into this a little bit, but um, I, I, I do not think I'm the only one in the speaking community who has realized like at first it was like, oh, no, I no longer have a career. And then it was, well, maybe we could figure out a way to make this work. And then it's like, you know what? This never getting on a plane is pretty dope. <laughs> like maybe, maybe we could lean into this skit a little bit. So, yeah, for sure. And I, I, I think from my perspective, and and when I looked at the data, and we're going to look at that in just a second. I think the thing that I, I saw because I'm not a, I'm not a professional speaker. I don't, you know, I do uh, have the opportunity to speak occasionally at conferences and events, but it wasn't my primary. It's not my primary role at TechSmith. But what I saw is that this kind of feeling is, I think, applicable to people who are doing other types of anything that required face-to-face, whether you're a trainer, whether you're sales, consulting, things like that, right? Like, I think there's a throughput here that says, yes, we talk to speakers, but it's not just about Absolutely. Absolutely. You think about the impact of the pandemic on so many job categories that used to be solely face to face, whether you are a teacher, whether you own a yoga studio, as one of my friends do, whether you are the athletics trainer for a university sports team, as one of my friends is, whether you are a financial planner, as one of my friends are, whether you're an attorney, uh, as one of my friends are, like all of those things relied on letting me eyeball you in a small conference room or literally let my let me put hands on you to adjust your positioning and 0% of that is happening uh, and 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 100% of those categories and many many more that we didn't mention are now relying either exclusively or at least significantly on some kind of video whether it's recorded video live video some sort of video and and it has uh, changed everything and and the question i think rightfully asked is how much will we go back? 
Right. I don't know. We don't know yet, but, but I, I don't think we're going to go back all the way. I mean, people are already saying like, just keep working from home. This is actually easier. Or, or you think about uh, contactless delivery, right? So somebody brings you your pizza now and it used to be they knock on the door and like, Hey, what's up? Thanks for the pizza. You know, here's an extra $5 or whatever. And they hand you the pizza. Uh, and, and now they, they text you when they're, you know, out front. And then you do like this hostage negotiation about the pizza, like where, <laughs> like where to put it, you know, on the front or the back or on the lawn chair, on the planner, you know, it's like this whole back and forth. And that's kind of funny, but, but like, ultimately I don't need to go back. Like I don't need to have like a micro relationship with the delivery driver. Uh, and we probably should have always done it that way. And I think there's a lot of things that we have learned that maybe this would have been better from the beginning. As I've been saying to people, we sort of fit like three, 36 months of digital transformation and sort of embrace of video into 36 days. Yeah. And, and, and that is, it's like, it's pretty, pretty hardcore. And all of a sudden it's like, well, guess what? If you didn't want to get familiar with video before, <laughs> um, you are now going to get familiar with video, period. Uh, and it, that's why TechSmith Academy, for example, is such an incredible resource. Let me just say, we didn't set this up. Uh, very familiar with TechSmith Academy. It is awesome. If you haven't had a chance to dive in there, it, it really is what you need to get comfortable with, with doing this. If you're not innately comfortable with it, it's super easy to use and really well executed. Well, thank you. We we appreciate that because that's that's our goal, right? It's not to uh, necessarily sell software. It's really to make people feel more comfortable. And you're right about this digital transformation. I see that that window, right? Even in my my own experience, as you know, I've worked at a tech company now for 15 years, and looking at you know every day, got up, drove into the office, did my thing, came home, and now not doing that, you know, I know there's a lot of conversations going on. Even how do we work? here in this situation and change kind of the whole dynamic of a company culture because yeah. it's working, right? And we don't need necessarily the same infrastructure that we thought we needed, you know, five years ago or three years ago even. Yeah, people say you couldn't create culture remotely. And I, and I think we're proving that's not true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start looking at some of this data because I think it's it's really interesting and I think it will help tell the story of, of these folks that we've been talking about so far. So uh, bringing up uh, slide one here, Jay, so you're on the same page as me. This yep. is uh, clearly just a look at who was involved in some of the mm -hmm. types of uh, you know, people that were, were involved in this survey. So you can see it's a, it looks like a pretty wide variety of people talking about like from a wide variety of expertise. Yeah, which is certainly reflective of the speaking industry, right? So there are, are lots of people who are professional speakers, but but they come at it from different perspectives because different audiences need different lessons. So you've got the leadership and coaching group there with 72 respondents. That is, by all measures, the, the largest share of the speaking world. People always need to be motivated and, and fired up. You've got the branding, marketing, customer experience folks, which is sort of my crew. I will tell you that 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 in the real world, that's probably oversampled in this data. Uh, you know, the branding, marketing, customer experience share of the speaking business is probably not the second largest share. It's just that I know more of those people personally, <laughs> because that's the world that I live in. Yep. So we probably have more respondents in that category than we typically would if we would completely random sampled this. But I think what's really interesting in general, Matt, is there, there really isn't um, much at all in the, in the world of research about speakers. 
Like they're just, they're just, that doesn't exist. Like people don't do it. Even the speakers association doesn't really publish public research about their members, et cetera. So, uh, to, to have the, the attitudes of, we have 309 professional speakers that just is something that doesn't really happen or exist. So, um, regardless of, uh, of the outcomes of this research, the fact that it exists is, is pretty noteworthy. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's interesting to see because I don't I'm not tuned into the speaking world per se. And it's, so it's interesting to see the the variety that is there, even if it is a bit oversampled in some areas. Um, you know, it sounds like there's probably speakers that cover all sorts of areas, if not all. Oh, areas. Absolutely. Look at, yeah, you look at equality and inclusion, social change, social justice. Um, there aren't as many of those speakers, but obviously, especially given um, the circumstances in the world, even since this uh, research was conducted, a tremendous. Uh, an appetite for those kind of messages amongst a lot of corporate audiences, associations, et cetera. And so while there are certain parts of um, the speaking world, like sales and leadership and, and motivation, which will always be popular because it's human nature, there are other topics that tend to wax and wane based on larger societal factors. So you can see equality, inclusion, social change, that will that will rise, and rightfully so. I think we all believe that it should uh, for the next couple of years and hopefully beyond. And then you have other things that maybe two or three years ago were, were white hot, like um, speaking about generations, right? So how do you right. work with Millennials or Gen Z, and that tends to, to wax and wane, right? So as, as a new generation comes up, tons of interest, and then as that generation sort of becomes codified, then the interest goes down until the next generation comes up. So it tends to kind of follow a wave effect. And it's just an interesting in the speaking business um, how different topics can can vary in market demand from year to year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on to our next slide. And this is the ways they've uh, these presenters have uh, presented or shared their experience. Um, it looks like a lot of face-to-face, -face, which you would totally expect from a group of speakers. Yes, uh, shocked it's not 100%. May have, miss, may, may have misread the question, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, looks like we've got a lot of webinars, a lot of, uh, about 75% created videos for YouTube. Um, mm -hmm. And so these, of course, in this slide, the people could select more than one. So, you know, obviously yes. people don't just speak or just do webinars. So it's interesting to see that kind of how that long tail falls down. Um, but it does look like a lot of people have created a video. And it's, I mean, obviously YouTube is a, a popular destination, it seems like. Any thoughts yeah, from this one? Partially because uh, YouTube is, is where... Um, the preponderance of kind of speaker demo videos are, are located. So whether uh -huh. it's your sizzle reel kind of trailer, if you will, or excerpts of your main presentations, just uh, that's just where they are. They're just on YouTube. I think that the philosophy is that it's easiest for meeting planners to find you there since YouTube has such a large search engine on top of it. Uh, also, you can mark some clips private or, or um, things like that if you want to give it to a particular pers prospective client, et cetera. So I think you have a, a relatively high level of comfort with with YouTube. Uh, and and to see, you know, three out of four, three or four out of 10 doing some things in social, either with social video or live video, that 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 smells right uh, to me. It's, it's a minority of the overall speaking community, but certainly growing uh, over time it, it, because people realize you know, this is a nice way to dimensionalize your expertise, just to just to create a, a two minute video on LinkedIn or what have you. And so there's been more and more interest in that uh, over time. Some people do it better than others. Some people do it very randomly, like a couple times a year. And then there are lots of speakers, um, not by percentage, but just by raw numbers who are doing daily videos. Uh, my friends, 
Scott McCain has a daily Facebook live show, which is terrific, right? So yeah. it just depends on kind of your own embrace of technology or your fear of technology. And, and some topics, I think, um, I think some speaking topics are easier to chop up into smaller bites and, and deliver in, in a shorter window. Some, some aren't quite as, as easy to do that way. Yeah. And I would also imagine that, it, um, thinking about not only just your comfort level with the technology or your topic, but just your audience need, right? Like, do they expect you to be out there every day or, you know, is, is once a week or once a month, something that's, you know, what are, what do they want to consume? It seems like a big question that these speakers would have to answer as well for that. Yeah. At some level you sort of think, well, if you build it, they will come. And there's some truth to that. I mean, I don't know that there's a right or a wrong answer, Matt, in terms of cadence. I've done everything from daily to 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 occasional and everything in between with video in my career. I think ultimately it's not so much what does your audience expect, it's what do you want to train your audience to expect. Right. What's the right? promise? And if, and, yeah. And if you can deliver consistent value, you can do it every day, right? You can build an audience every day if it's valuable every day. But if you're doing it every day just to say you could do it every day and it's not always valuable, then that audience is going to decay over time. So what I always like to tell people is create content of any kind, video, audio, puppet show, it doesn't matter. Create content as often as you can as long as it's awesome. The second it becomes not awesome, do it less so that it's always awesome, right? That, that, that should be the rule, right? If it's, if it's better than your audience expects every time, then you're going to be fine. So, so modify your cadence until you can over deliver always. Love it. That's great advice and, and great. And not just for live stuff for live video, but any, any videos, right? Any content you're putting out there, make it anything deliver. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Haiku. It doesn't matter. Like anything you're making, uh, if it's better than they expect, great. And maybe you can do it. If you're doing it once a week and it's awesome, maybe you can try to do it twice a week. But then the question becomes, if you've doubled your frequency, is it still awesome? And if it's yes, it's like, well, maybe we could do this three times a week. Is it still awesome? And as soon as you sort of get to that point and the audience will tell you, you can just watch the analytics. Yeah. And when you get to the point where it's like, you know what, you're, you're, you're trying to do too much, then you just pull it back one level and you're good. Yeah. And I, so I wonder uh, though, like I, so I think we talked to a lot of beginners, people who are just new at this and I'd say, this is really great advice. My uh, advice would also be like, you got to start someplace. So just you keep making yes. stuff and, and you'll get better. And that's But that's oh. the only way to get better, right? Like don't, don't of wait course. until you're awesome to publish. Well, and, and the idea that the idea that just because you made a video that an audience will instantly appear out of thin air, yeah. uh, that doesn't work. Uh, that, that doesn't work <laughs> even for, even for professional speakers who've been doing this for years and have notoriety and, and an existing audience. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Right. It, the biggest problem that people have, um, is lack of patience. For sure. Right? They, they are like, well, I made a video. Yeah. Yeah, guess what? Seinfeld was almost canceled. <laughs> because the first two years of the show, nobody watched. People are like, oh, I watched Seinfeld from the very beginning. You didn't. You're lying. 
you definitely didn't. You went back and watched the old episodes later, right? Nobody watched it in the first two years, right? They almost canceled it. And and that's true of everything in a lot of ways. There's very, very few instant successes, uh, especially with online content, as much competition as there are. So, you know, what I like to say is if you're like, hey, I should start making videos. Yes, you should. But if you're not willing to stick this out for six months, don't start. Absolutely. You're likely to be disappointed. Absolutely. Well, let's keep moving through the data here because lots, lots to get through. And I know we've got some questions coming in from the audience that we're cool. going to want to ask. So, awesome. uh, so feeling about re- the transition. Remember, this was in March. So mm-hmm. we're looking, we're talking about the kind of that first initial, like, oh my gosh, everything's blowing up. I don't know what I'm going to yes. do. And we can see that lots, you know, lots of different feelings. They could select one of the feelings. Um, and actually, I think I like the next slide even better, slide four, yeah, because sort of it, rolled up. this is nicely done. Yeah. Yeah, I'm this I'm actually surprised that oh crap wasn't higher. Right. Um you know, this is I think it's about 25 30% or something like that mathematically. 25 I think was oh crap and 75 is okay, I got this. That surprises me a little bit. And actually based on the anecdotal feedback I got from people personally, uh I I would have thought that it would almost be the reverse. Um but it I think it does speak to the fact that that speakers, I think, as a profession, tend to be pretty optimistic because ultimately, like, what is your actual business? You're convincing people that you know something they want to know and they're going to give you money to learn it. That's a pretty thin premise to begin with, <laughs> right? I mean, like, you know, it's not like you're like, okay, you know, look at, I, I made a car for you, buy this car. I mean, the, the whole speaking um, revenue model is is a little amorphous, uh, you know, from the beginning. And so I think that tends to attract people who uh, have a little more comfort with ambiguity and uncertainty. Uh, and and I think that's reflected here in, in this data. Um, the one that I think is the most interesting, though, on this slide, Matt, is unprepared, unprepared, Yeah. 46 out of, out of 300, right? That's the one that I find the most interesting because I can see you being nervous, sure, and I can see you being sad, mad, scared, what have you, pandemic for sure, um, unprepared. And, and, and to me, that will never happen again. Right. Because everybody will be prepared next time. I mean, the amount of money and time and effort speakers have put into uh, being able to do live streams or videos since March is I I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's a lot um, because I know what I have spent and I know what lots of my friends have spent on cameras and lights and Camtasia and and processing power and everything else. It's it's no joke. It is um, uh, it, it is it is no longer optional. Uh, and, and like we said, whether you wanted to do this or not, you no longer have a choice. The idea of, well, Hey, I give speeches. I could just give a speech online. Yeah. That's where you sort of get the excited or the neutral or maybe the nervous. But then we're like, Oh, and I've got to have a whole new AV setup and I have to master not just Zoom, but also Camtasia or similar, and maybe I got to master Ecamm or Switcher Studio or Restream.io or StreamYard, and I also have to be able to, you know, look at live chats at the same time I'm presenting. It's a lot. I am yep. super fortunate because my team and I have done live events for more than a decade. I've done hundreds of these before the pandemic. So uh, for me, I was like, okay, great. Uh, don't have to leave the house. Super. Uh, but for a lot of other people who have 
almost always sort of done it in the traditional face-to-face way. Uh, yeah, it was like, okay, let's do it. And then you realize, oh, it's not quite as easy as we thought. It would be interesting if we would have done this in, say, um, I don't know, mid-May, maybe you would have had even less enthusiasm. But I think now, just anecdotally, again, I have data on this, people sort of push through that wall yeah. and, and said, okay, like, yeah, man, this is more work than I thought. But again, I don't really have a choice. To me, the way I would frame it up is, is this whole like get comfortable virtually is like learning a language, right? It's like, okay, here's the deal. Uh, you make X dollars a year, right? From now on, you make zero dollars until you learn Portuguese. That's like literally what it's like. Uh, and, and so you might be like, bro, I don't want to learn Portuguese. And then you start learning Portuguese. Like that totally sucks. It sounds like fish, dish, mish. It's like really, really hard to learn. But you're like, well, I don't make any money until I learn Portuguese. So I best I better suck it up and figure it out. And I, that's like sort of the pattern that has occurred, I think. Yeah. I, I know uh, when we talked in preparation for this meeting, I told you the story that my my son, he, he moved to Mexico and he didn't know any Spanish. And within six, seven months, he, he says, I'm not fluent, but boy, he can communicate with anybody he needs to about most things. And it's like, you put yourself in that circumstance and you're going to learn, uh, which I think it's, you're exactly right with this, right? The technology is there. Yes, it can be challenging. You got to learn the cameras, the lights, all the things that you talked about. But as soon as you start and you make your first thing, the next one becomes just a little bit easier. It's such a good point, Matt, that, that it becomes easier every time. And, and what I like to tell people, especially, you know, using tools like yours from TechSmith, it's not hard, None of this is hard. It is complicated. And to me, there's a difference between hard and complicated. Um, hard means you have to develop some sort of skill mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and really some sort of capability. Complicated just means you got to figure it out, right? And, and I think it really is that more so than it is the former, at least how I, that's how I see it. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's exactly the right uh, kind of metaphor for it. It's, it's not hard. It's just, it is complicated. And there are a lot of great resources out there, uh, ours included, that will help people through that. So it's not something that's impossible to overcome either. Uh, I've and, and part of it is you tend to, you tend to make your own complexity, right? So I, I like to think of, of video creation um, in, in virtual presentations, sort of like Microsoft Excel, in that if you just want to total up some columns of numbers, like that's pretty easy to do. Yeah. But if you want to start making pivot tables, you're probably going to have to put some real time into this. And and that's why I think there's sort of a, a, a good analog here that if you want to make some credible videos, most speakers have the communication part down. That's how they're trained. You can do it pretty easily, especially with tools that are easy out of the box like Camtasia. But if you want to do, you know, four cameras and switchers and everything else, like there's going to be another level of learning there. Yeah, ap- absolutely. Well, let's let's keep moving on the slides here because I think we've got a few more here that we want to cover. Cool. Uh, so the next one, interest in areas for potential revenue streams. So uh, this is where people are looking to say like, hey, how mm-hmm. now that I'm not speaking, how am I gonna thinking about going about actually making my money? Yeah. Um, Realtor wasn't on here. Was a surprise. I figured there'd be like working at McDonald's. Uh, also not not on there, uh, and maybe should have been. Uh, but it's interesting because I think um, again, I don't I don't know this to be true, but my assessment is that a lot of these were were ideas that um, speakers had already 
thought about adding to their their business models. But and I can speak from experience in this regard. It's hard to add another revenue stream when you're constantly traveling. Yeah. Not impossible. And there's not impossible, and there's a lot of speakers who have done it successfully. Maybe they're better at time management than me. Entirely possible, um, but but it's it's hard to be like, and let's do this other thing, and this other thing, this other thing, when you're so busy doing the first thing. It's like trying to pinstripe a moving car. But something like paid online courses, for example, has been attractive to speakers for the longest time because it is the closest thing that speaking can get to passive income. Uh, and it's like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, paid online course, and we and every speaker knows some other speaker who's making a tremendous amount of money doing paid online courses. And you're like, man, why am I not doing that? Like, I know a thing that people would pay to know. How come I'm not monetizing it that way? And it becomes frustrating and sort of self-defeating at some level. So that doesn't really surprise me. Um, consulting, same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Just just take what you know and 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 sort of do it on a one to one or one to few basis. Um, but I thought the YouTube channel. Uh, as an actual revenue stream was fascinating. That's the one on this chart that that really, um, obviously virtual summits and events and kind of doing speaking through uh, Zoom or what have you, that stands to reason two thirds of the audience thought so. But 54% saying I'm gonna create and monetize, presumably, a YouTube channel, that was fascinating and actually higher than I thought because making a YouTube channel isn't terribly difficult, Matt, mm -hmm. you know this. Making money on a YouTube channel is not quite the same thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, totally do, but but it is. It, it definitely feels like, no. from my, my experience of of watching people do this, and and I've not tried to monetize a YouTube channel, but I I you know talked to a number of people that have, and those who are people are really successful. It is a long term grind. It is not a year, two years. It's like you know you talk to like Jeremy Vest or mm -hmm. Roberta Blake, and they'll tell you they've been cranking at it for like ten plus years. Yeah. Yeah, I think for a lot of speakers who may have said, hey, let's go to YouTube instead of doing live speeches, you know, by the time the YouTube channel even starts getting some acceleration, you might be doing live speeches again. Yeah. Well, it is, it's also interesting that all these oh. are playing into the thing that you're already doing too, right? Like it's not mm -hmm. like it's a big jump to, like you said, to make a paid course or do a YouTube channel. It's just literally a pivot from I'm speaking to a live audience to I'm speaking to a camera. Mm -hmm. But what I'm – and maybe it's – you know, I think we just kind of grouped the different – I don't know if we asked them specifically for these or if uh, we just took their open answers and grouped them. But no one kind of went – no one really went afield, right? Like no one went off to these other opportunities that aren't like speaking, which I mean, I guess makes sense when you're in the middle of a pandemic, you don't know what to do, like do the thing you know. Yeah, and I think it's do do the thing you know, but again, since we did this in early March, it's what's the fastest thing you could do? Yeah, for sure. Like those may not even be the best ideas, but but in terms of, what thing could I theoretically turn on quickest? Um, that makes a lot of sense, whether it's a course or mastermind groups as well, um, uh, et cetera. It's, it's take the existing body of knowledge and just charge for it in a different way. Consulting, mastermind group, virtual summit, um, online course, right? Those are all just pricing schemes for the same knowledge base. That's, that's the path of least resistance to, to revenue. So that it makes sense why, why that, um, why that happened. But as more time goes on, um, you're exactly right, Matt. If, if we ask this, maybe not even now, but if we ask this um, in September, right? And so people have had six months to really think through, all right, what kind of business can you be in and do you want to be in? It might be interesting to see what you come up with. It might be people saying, hey, I want to 
you know, I want to join the circus or something. Sure. Probably not, but maybe. Maybe virtual circus. Dan Thurman would do that since he can juggle. <laughs> well, let's let's keep going here because I know the next couple slides we've got some good data and there's some questions again that are cool. going to be related to the stuff that we're going to show. So this was biggest concerns with creating mm -hmm. and sharing digital presentations versus live. Of course, we've talked some about that, like just the comp. Com uh, the complexity of going to use yep. all the equipment and stuff like that. Um, it's about that audience engagement interaction. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've spoken, uh, I think my largest group was like 500 people. It was a, a tech conference and it was awesome. But I could see the faces, right? I could pick out a couple people and see, you know, find the grumpy guy, see if I could make him smile or whatever. But yes. when you're in these environments, you, you really can't see your audience. So what do you do, Jay? Yes, yes and no. Uh, yes and no. So to some degree, this depends on on what kind of speaker you, you are. Um, if you tend to do a lot of workshops and breakouts where your material is typically delivered with more interaction mm -hmm. and interactivity, then, then definitely that's maybe troublesome. If you're doing more keynotes where it's more of a stand and deliver model, yes, you're right. You can't read the room in the same way. But I will tell you, having done this for a long time and done a lot of virtual events now, even since the pandemic, I actually like it better. Uh, and this is going to sound controversial and bizarre, but let me tell you why. A, I can look at whoever I want when they've got all their cameras turned on. And I almost always insist that cameras are on mm -hmm. uh, when I'm doing virtual things. And, and you can see people's facial expressions in a way that you cannot see from the stage because they're in close up as opposed to 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 150 feet away. You know, in a, in a real audience, you can see the first two rows. You can't see anybody past right. that. So now I can see whoever I want, wherever I want. I can lock in on individual people. And... So what I will tell you is that as somebody who primarily does keynotes, even if you do Q&A in a live presentation, and I typically don't, uh, it usually sucks because somebody <laughs> has to get up out of their chair and go to a microphone that's on a stand in between the aisles or raise their hand. And then someone runs them a microphone. There's a big gap of dead air during that. And then they ask the question. And the question may or may not be any good. Uh, and it may be too specific to their world. And then you got to answer. And everybody's going to sit there and listen to it. And, it, you know, it's just usually not the highlight of the event. In this case, though, two things are true. One, as a presenter, when people are asking questions in a chat or a Q&A, I get to pick the question. And I can pick questions that I know are going to be valuable to most people. I can sequence the questions in real time for maximum audience benefit. And I have discovered that it is, I don't, I don't know the percentage, I'm going to say 1 billion percent more likely that somebody will ask a question in a virtual event than they will in a live event. Because in a live event, you got to go through this whole process of raising your hand and asking the question. And now you're nervous because what if the question does suck and everybody's going to laugh at you or think you're an idiot? But people are just like freestyling, right? In a chat yeah. or, or an online Q&A, question, 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 question. So I think that you actually get way better audience interaction virtually. And I actually like it better for that reason. Are you using a lot of polling? Do you find that's an effective way, another way to bring in the audience? I do. I use polls a lot um, to kind of get them used to the keyboard um, because it tends to then result in more questions and comments later. It sort of, it sort of warms them up. 
I will tell you though, having emceed a ton of these that you don't want to go to that well too many times. It gets a little rote and a little boring. So, so I typically would use no more than two or three in a regular kind of 45 or 60 minute performance. I will say though, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, Matt, but one of the things that I love to do um, especially in webinar platforms like uh, Zoom or On24 or GoTo or WebEx, et cetera, when you use polls or ask questions of, of people that they can answer in the chat, in most cases, those responses will actually append to the attendee record. So when we're doing webinars, like for my own consulting team, we'll ask questions like, um, now that this webinar is concluded, how likely are you to shift some of your budget from X to Y? Mm -hmm. And their answers to the poll question makes it more interactive that it's a poll, but those answers actually then attend to the record. We can export that and it's amazing information for the sales team. So you can actually use polls and chats to develop more information about the audience, which they can, you can then use to further some business objectives. Um, a little fun, a little fun fact, uh, there. But there are also a lot of other ways to do audience interaction beyond just the built-in polling. So sometimes you can do what I call a finger poll. So you have everybody turn on their cameras and say, okay, here's option one, here's option two, option three, hold up however many fingers you think it is. Right. right? And so that's kind of a fun way to do it, right? Um, sometimes you can just do polls in the chat. I do this a lot, right? Where I don't necessarily put up the, the actual poll graphic, but it's like, okay, is it ABC? Put your answer in the chat. It's not quite as scientific. Um, so there's a lot of different ways you can build that interaction without just using the polling function per se. Well, I saw one speaker and this was a, a small event. So it was only about, it was probably about 50 people in total in a Zoom mm -hmm. meeting. And the speaker, he's a professor and uh, it was with some youth. They were, you know, he was talking to him. And the thing I loved is he, he'd be like, oh, hey there, Emily, you know, tell me about mm -hmm. this. Or you like, you, cause you also get to see like in Zoom, at least you get to see everyone's name, which everybody's name tag is present. Yes. Yeah. So he was able to use that, which I thought was actually a really cool interaction piece because then he could draw in individuals who may have already been engaged, but he could really, you know, he'd randomly say people's names and you knew if he said it, they were yeah. on edge. So that was, it's, it was really cool. The, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that. And that's one of the things I try to do. I try and mention at least 20 names in every session. That's sort of like my own kind of number that I try to try to work yeah. off of. Uh, and, and every time you're sort of in a little, in a little gap, right? You, you sort of say, oh, here's a question from whatever. And it just makes people feel like you're paying attention and they're important. And um, yeah, I, I got to tell you, I, I really mean this when I say, once you get over your historical bias towards live events, there are a lot of ways that virtual events are actually better. Yeah. I, I can totally see that. I, I think with everything we've talked about, I think the hard part is, uh, I think a lot of people see ones that aren't good. And therefore, yeah, there's a lot of really bias. bad weapons. Yes, yeah, yes, for sure. Do you ever get questions kind of seeded in so that they'll come up so you can answer them? Or do you just um, expect that people are yeah, going to ask good questions? Always, always. Okay. Um, we always have them, almost never need them. Uh, but always have them. Yeah, we always have seed questions that I've written or or our partners have written just in case. And, and usually what happens if we need them, it's just for a moment, right? It's the first, once you get the first question, 
then everybody's like, yeah, okay, cool. And then the questions start pouring in. I don't know if I've ever needed two seed questions, but every once in a while you need one to warm them up. But if you start using polls and you ask them to use the chat early on, so very simple technique, you, you log in and say, hey, is everybody's coming in? It's great. Hey, I see, I see Matt here. I see Marilyn here. I see Tony here. That's fantastic. Hey, as we get started, um, just curious, everybody's working from home, uh, put in the chat uh, what city you're dialing in from. Now, and everybody does that because it's super lightweight. Now they're comfortable with the keyboard. And now you can be like, oh, and Bob's coming from Indianapolis and Susan's coming from Istanbul. So now you're using that opportunity to recognize the audience. So now they know that you're paying attention and right. builds that kind of emotional connection. And then when it comes time to ask for questions, they're not scared of the keyboard because they've already been using it. The other thing I would encourage people to do in virtual events is typically the cadence for a speech is hold your questions to the end. I don't do that. I don't do that. It's if you've got a question, ask it at any time, uh, because I'd rather I'd rather sort of back and forth it a little bit more and make it more conversational. You have to be a little careful about your time, uh, which is why the way I set up my virtual events is different than in a live event. Live event usually the computer is is with the tech table, and so you know you kind of got to do the process. It's harder to skip. Mm -hmm. When I do virtual events, I always have my technology set up that I can I can go to any slide at any point. So if I'm like, all right, we took a bunch of questions in the middle and now we're running short on time, I can just manually skip ahead six slides and still land the plane on time. So I, I just set I set it up a little differently for that yeah. reason. No, that makes that makes a ton of sense. You know, getting others to engage with each other is that is that mm -hmm. like participants talking to each other? I mean, you you mentioned breakouts and stuff like that in small. Mm -hmm. I think that works smaller groups. If you have bigger groups, do you encourage that kind of activity, or is that something you would recommend people try? It can be a little challenging in a in a main virtual event where everybody's in the same room, although sometimes it does happen. Somebody will say, hey, um, you may ask me at the beginning, Matt, where are you dialing in from? And so they go, oh, I'm from there. I'm just from right down the road. And they sort of, they kind of start doing their own thing, what have you. Right. Um, but more and more of the virtual event technology platforms allow for breakouts, right? And they actually have a breakout room feature. Uh, and that can be really useful. Uh, I haven't done too much of it. Uh, I've done a few and it can be really cool. So you can, you can replicate that kind of, uh, that kind of experience. Kind of like sitting at the, everyone sitting at the round table and introduce exactly. themselves or whatever. Yep. Yeah. I was actually yep. part of one of those. Um, it was a group out of Minneapolis and uh, they had their business meeting before I was speaking to them and they were actually talking about diversity and things like that and they, how they're, they can change and actively do their group. And they put everybody in breakout groups, had them use the whiteboard, capture notes. So it was a really, it was a really nice experience, right? It was intimate. It was just a couple people. Everyone felt like they could talk. So yeah, definitely lots of things you can do here to, to engage your audience. That's not yeah, just whiteboard's a good example too. Like so that's an underutilized function in most platforms is the ability to draw on the screen and annotate your own slides and things like that, which is again something that you could do in a live environment. If you had a, a, a Wacom tablet, a, a tablet connected to your laptop that then goes on the slides, like it's doable, but it's actually way easier to do it in a virtual environment and sort of draw on your own stuff, which again, humanizes the speaker, builds a little bit more connection. I haven't done too much of that yet, um, but I want to do more of it. I've seen some people do it. I really like the technique. Yeah, for sure. If, if, uh, if you haven't seen Dan Rome, if you know Dan Rome, he wrote a book, Back of the Napkin. Uh, he's been doing drawing in his sessions. They were live, of course. I'm sure they, they work even better virtual because uh, he, he just uses PowerPoint and a pen and yeah. draws a lot and conveys a lot of really great information. Uh, but this next slide was really positive outcomes you might want from uh, the switched 
to the digital reach. Not surprising, right? Uh, to see like a broader reach. Um, you know, obviously digital, you can reach more people with a video or with a live event than you can in a, a capacityed room. You know, a room can maybe fit a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, but your digital can go anywhere. So, yeah, you're not buying chicken for people um, <laughs> or, or or anything else. Uh, so. Yeah, that, and, and I think that's also the hope for a lot of meeting planners too, right? Is that maybe you can't charge quite as much, but you can reach more people. And so the economics work better because your expenses are lower. Um, so I think that's the that's the calculus that everybody's trying to figure out right now. And it, it certainly differs from an event to an event basis, but I think there actually is a lot of upside there. The one that I thought was really interesting here, Matt, was the ability to continue audience interactions, which is kind of what I was you know, talking about earlier. Not only do you get richer interaction during the session if you structure it that way, but but you get more information about the participant, right? You know, what what did they comment on in the poll, in the chat, and I can follow up with them on that, which is really interesting. Um, and, and certainly the ability to have uh, less travel, uh, which is the number three one, it's uh, – that that is certainly attractive to many speakers, and it and it is to me as well. Um, I didn't realize how much it stressed me out until I stopped doing it. Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. It's uh, you know going through the airport. It's, it's not it's not all fun and games. Um, yeah, especially now. wasn't wasn't fun and games then. Uh, not particularly not fun and games now. Uh, so with virtual conferences, I, I think this idea of uh, you know between ability to continue audience interactions. Is there thoughts that you have about encouraging engagement between sessions? Like, let's say you're having, if, yeah. you know, obviously if it's just one presentation, there's not another one to be in between. But if you're doing like a day event where maybe they're going in and out of different kind of breakouts or whatever, um, yes. are there ways that you would suggest that people could benefit from interacting? Is that something you would encourage or not something you've done or thought about? One of the great similarities between live events and virtual events is that they have the same risk profile. And that risk is people's need to pee. <laughs> yep. If nobody ever had to pee, it would be way easier to keep an audience live or on the computer. On the computer, though, uh, especially in a work-from-home environment, people have so many distractions, right? Um, uh, restroom, children, dogs, mailman, you know, name your – there's more distractions at home than there are in the office. And, and so your, your real risk factor is, is not during the session, your risk factor is, as the question uh, posits, is in between sessions. And that's why I'm such a big believer, and some of this is self-serving because I do this for partially for a living, but such a big believer in MCs. So what we always tell our clients is if you're doing a virtual event that's got more than three speakers or is longer than three hours, get an MC and a host. Because keeping the energy super high in that five whatever minutes between sessions is critical. Uh, and that can be interactive polls. It can be giveaways and contests. It can be summaries of what you just heard and what you're going to hear and kind of stitching together the content. Critical, critical, critical. Because the second that energy drops, people are like, you know what? This would be a good time to go pee. And then they decide to get a drink. And then they check the mail. And then that's it. And then they're not coming back, right? So uh, it's really, really important to, to those five minutes or whatever the minutes are, are, are critical. And it is a skill for sure. 
It's interesting at, at TechSmith for, you know, we have lots of meetings. And of course, now we're all remote. We've actually said the first five minutes of any meeting longer than I think it's 30 minutes uh, is dedicated for social time to, mm -hmm. to interact. And actually, you're not, you don't start the meeting because people are allowed to be late that five minutes so they can go to the bathroom. But also during that time, talk to your peers or talk to your coworkers in this case, because you're not having the same kind of water yes. cool conversations. And I know it's different for big events. You're not maybe going to have that, but I can totally get the, like the, see the th throughput, right? Like that. Yes. You need energy. You need people to talk. You need people to feel comfortable and to feel like they've related to whoever's there. And I love that idea of stitching together what you've heard. Like the MC becomes the master storyteller, yep. weaving it all together to bring around maybe those kind of really tangible central, essential points. Yeah, one of the things I'll do uh, when I'm emceeing virtual summits is after sort of a, a chunky session like that, ask people to put into the chat their number one takeaway from what they just heard. What's the one thing you're going to put into practice immediately? And not only does that make them kind of reconsider what they just heard and, and try to apply it to their regular life, uh, but it then provides a lot of great feedback for the organizers and the speaker as well. But then I'll read a bunch of those off. You know, Matt, that's a great point. I love the way you phrase that and, and sort of interact with the audience. But then I'll do a lot of prizes and giveaways. So the ones I really like, like, Matt, I like that one so much. Boom, you get a T-shirt. Sheila, that was a great point. You're going to get a tote bag, right? And sort of, you know, do that mm -hmm. kind of uh, game show style production as well. So I know in a lot of cases, Jay, you talked about having an MC, you know, there's a question that about like, uh, you know, should you have someone doing the tech? Like if it's a big event, you know, should like, mm -hmm. let's say I yeah. be running the tech while you're speaking. Um, but also what's the role of actually pre-recording speakers in all of this? Is there a place for that? Should speakers be always be Huge. live? No, no, they definitely should not. And, and, and I use Camtasia, um, to, to pre-record content all the time uh, for for virtual summits and keynotes and things like that, even even webinars that we do semi-live, that we that we you know sort of go through the motions of them being live, but the content itself is pre-recorded. In fact, I'm doing one tomorrow. Um, it, here's why: one, if you if it's pre-recorded, the chances of you having a tech problem go down, not not to zero, but definitely goes down. Uh, two. Most people who are not professional speakers and even many professional speakers who haven't done as much virtual are less comfortable doing a presentation virtually uh, because you might not be on your feet. You don't have a stage in the same way. You don't have the audience's feedback. Uh, it's 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 like people who do radio. Radio is really hard until you've done radio a lot because you're like, is anybody li – is this thing on? Like, is anybody listening here? Yeah. The, the, the actual physical um, delivery of the information is awkward. Um, and so you usually aren't as good, frankly, um, when you do virtual presentations. So being able to pre-record it and be like, you know what? That wasn't my best. Let me take another swing at that. That's awesome. And for people who don't speak professionally, when I do virtual MC stuff, I almost always want the company speaker or the client speaker or the customer speaker or whatever. I almost always advise that those are pre-recorded because they will be much more comfortable themselves, which makes a better performance and a better event. But the third one is one that you might not uh, be thinking about, friends, which is I love the ability to pre-record my talk, play it, play the video but then be in the chat during the playback. Because when people have questions, I can be answering them as 
I'm talking on video and, and really interact with people in that way. And it's a really nice experience for the attendees. And I really enjoy it as well. Okay. Last slide. So biggest challenge to connecting with audience digitally. And mm -hmm. we've talked probably a lot about these things. You can see that the engagement again uh, came up and we've talked a lot about that. Uh, you know, you've got lack of body language. Mm -hmm. We talked about that. Yep. Uh, you know, building an online following an audience competing with digital noise. Definitely. That's a, that's a challenge, yep. right? It's going to take, like, it I is. think that goes back to what you said, six months. Don't, don't plan on doing a videos. Well, look, on you, your competition in live speaking is anybody who's hired to be a live speaker. Your competition online is everybody. Right. It's a different set of competitors, right? Um, so, so that people who answered that question that way are absolutely right. But I thought the technology one um, and, and which is like 9% and the, um, how to create, you know, interactive content, Etc. And it's not, again, it's not hard. It's just complicated. Uh, I really believe that anybody who is a speaker or, or a presenter of any kind, again, whether you're a, a financial planner, an attorney, uh, a yoga teacher, a personal trainer, a, a realtor, an accountant, anybody who has meaningful conversations with customers on a regular basis can and should master this stuff. Um, and, and, and it's totally doable. It really is. This is not that hard. It's actually not hard at all, just complicated. Yeah, it feels like as we go forward in this digital world, the the skill sets of reading, writing, arithmetic, and then, you know, it feels like more and more the skill of video has a play <laughs> the three there. Three R's plus V. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at least in my mind. And I, you know, I, I tell my, my kids, I've got two college age kids and I've told them for years, like, you know, learning how to do this will only benefit you because if you have this skill, it doesn't matter what your role is, you can use this skill in that role. That's exactly right. I mean, we, we've done a lot of work at my consulting firm in the last year training salespeople, you know, how to, how to do, you know, good video, even in a social context. Like how can a salesperson do a quick video on, on LinkedIn, which can reach some prospects, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, so let's ask the question right now. Mike and camera you're using because they say you look and sound great, Jay. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Uh, this is a uh, Panasonic camcorder. Um, I forget the exact model number. It's like VX750 or something like that. Uh, it's a 4K uh, camcorder that I just have hooked up through a USB to my computer. I have a second camera that I haven't used today, which is a Canon M50 uh, with a 50 millimeter lens, which creates that nice blurry uh, bokeh effect. Mm -hmm. um, historically, that wouldn't work very well in this particular setting because the Canon cameras would actually show the focus box in the feed, which sucks, um, but they just rolled out a new software patch for it, which takes it away, thank God. So now I can run both those cameras. I sometimes also run my phone as a camera because your phone's pretty high quality typically as sort of like a behind the scenes cam, like off to the side where I'll kind of look that way on a little tripod. So I, I usually have three cameras set up uh, two softbox lights and then the one behind me. Uh, and this can this, uh, microphone, which I like a lot is the, uh, roadie Procaster. I typically use it for podcasts because I have three podcasts that I record every week. Um, but I use it for video as well. The only problem with this microphone is it's directional. So you gotta be kind of, you gotta be right down the barrel here. You know, if I just move it a little bit, like you, you lose me a lot. Yeah. Um, unless I'm, I'm right back here. And for example, Matt's microphone, um, the Yeti is, is better for omnidirectional. You also has a setting for it. So 
um, that microphone is a little more flexible. This one, you really have to pay attention to where it is, which is why, whether I like it or not, this microphone's always in the shot. The only way it couldn't be in the shot is if I hung it from the ceiling right out of the frame, yep. uh, and I'm just too lazy to do that, frankly. Yeah, uh, I mean... I mean, such such an important thing to think about, though, right? Like, and this is where that compl the complicatedness comes in is that you've got to think about mics, you got to think about cameras. I, I've spent a long time thinking about, uh, and I'm I've been only doing live streaming really since March. But like, how do I hook up my iPhone because I don't have another camera? Like, but it's better than the webcam that the Mac has. So, yeah, really, really good. And thank you for sharing those. And to, yeah, I mean, on the on the iPhone, I'll just tell you if I put it in the chat, the the software to buy is um uh is called NDI. HX camera, which is a, the worst name of a product maybe ever. It doesn't even make any sense. NDI HX camera. Um, I think it's like 10 bucks or something. And then it turns your iPhone uh, just through through Wi-Fi. It's a pretty awesome into another camera, which is great. If you don't want to invest in another expensive camera, you just want to have that ability to cut away to another scene. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. See, and there's lots of lots of great things out there that you can do with a without ha adding a lot to your budget. I mean, you can do with no, and you can got. put it all into Camtasia and then edit it in there, which is what I do. Like I do so many videos uh, that that I could and probably should be using some sort of super pro package, right, from from one of the other big software companies. But I don't because I know Camtasia and it's super easy and it's super flexible. I record all my, I, I edit all my podcasts in there in the audio only uh, console. I don't use GarageBand. I use Camtasia. Uh, I, I do everything in there because I know it and it's fast. Yeah, well, well, we appreciate you saying all those things. We did not prompt that, so, but we're always happy no. to always happy that you do say it, Jay. We're we're so great. We're so grateful that you joined us today. Thanks for going through the data with us, all the tips you provided. Yeah. This has been super fun for me to you know think about these things and go deeper. Jay, I want to thank you once again for joining me today. I appreciate all your time and your great insights. Uh, last thing we're going to do here just before we, we wrap up, I just want to remind everybody that if you are new to video and you're trying to figure this all out, check out the TechSmith Academy, academy.techsmith.com. It's a free learning resource. Go learn how to get better audio in your own environment. Light, use lighting. Uh, you can how to set up your cameras for good shots, write scripts, get advice from some experts. So again, we appreciate everybody for tuning in today. And Jay, thanks again. We sure appreciate it. You bet, buddy. Take care.